0: Welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group. And a bit later in the season, I'll be recapping how my group does and running through the material we've created so you can see what worked and what didn't work, and we'll discuss the adjustments I would recommend you make for your game. As our regular listeners know, this season we're building for the Fallout role-playing game, which is available in your local game or bookstore now or online from the Modiphius website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot Okay, before we get into this week's stuff, I, much like I had did last week, I have um, found a couple of things that I need to kind of go back and clean up from last week's show. Uh, I noticed that at one point when we were getting from Victor's into Dogtown, I mentioned that we would add some time based on encounters. I did not do that. Add another 20 minutes to the total time. So that'll take the travel time to three hours and 20 minutes to get there. I also did not note during my whole follow Amber, not follow Amber, what would happen if the group followed Amber and failed their little check with Byron and his uh, steroid pals inside Garson Tactical frankly, probably the exact same thing. I hadn't thought that through all the way when I wrote it anyway. It would probably be the same thing. Amber would just act a lot faster. I also have had it pointed out to me that my sound and my pacing on last week's episode were a little bit off. I was recording the episode at a time of day that I'm not usually recording, so I apologize for that. And I will endeavor to do better on that in the future. And yes, you may occasionally hear a squeaking I'm in my new studio, but my desk chair is old and it squeaks when I try to move around to get comfortable. So I apologize. All right, let's get into it. Last week, our group took their first job off the job board. We listed three and built out the first one on the list, which was delivering a package to Dogtown. Remember, when you run this, your group might pick one of the other two as their first job. So just be ready. We pick up this week, the morning after the group has completed their job, they'll probably want to choose another job off the board, or (laughs) if I know my group, they took all three jobs when they were there in the first place, and they just need to decide which one of the remaining two they want to take. Before we build this week, don't forget to make sure your group leveled up to level three at the end of last week's build, regardless of which of the three jobs they took. Alright so we're going down the job list in order and if you need a refresher we covered it in the first five minutes of last week's show so check that out when we're done here. This means this time around they're going to check into the missing wife. The address given on the offer is 1 Memorial Drive. For those keeping track at home in the real world that's the location of the Gateway Tower which contains several businesses. It took a heck of a beating when the bombs dropped, though rumors have run through the survivor community that the first level, which is all that's left in decent enough shape to use, has been cleared out and has a small community of people living in it. The contact name on the notice is Paul Vernon, so they've got an address and a name, and that means it's time to head out. How long it takes depends on where they spent the night. If they're using the McGurk's location as a base of operation, it'll take about 20 minutes to get there. If they found a spot in Gateway Pass or just outside of it, they can actually get there in less than 10. However long it takes them to get there, when they arrive they notice a couple of figures guarding the entrance to the building. Both are clad in an odd mix of armors, obviously either scavenged from raiders or purchased from dealers along the way. They're both wearing helmets with visors and carrying automatic rifles. They stop the group 15 feet from the entrance and ask them their business. When the group explains why they're there, and they should do that instead of mouthing off, one of the figures will raise the visor on their helmet, revealing a woman's face. She identifies herself as Cassidy Vernon and adds that Paul is her father. She will personally escort the group into the building and take them to Paul. The former Gateway Center has been rather efficiently redesigned by those who've taken it over to live in. Though it doesn't seem like it would have had the space to hold it, there are 20 individual apartments laid out, with defined hallways and a common area just inside the doorway with enough space for at least a dozen people to hang out, though one would think they might be hanging out in smaller groups. In fact, they notice about a half a dozen people in that area split into a group of four and another of two. They seem to be having polite conversation, but they stare at the group as they enter the building. Cassidy takes the group down a hallway to a door with a four crudely painted on it in green. She opens the door and leads them into the equivalent of an efficiency apartment. Living room, bedroom, and small cooking area all in one. No idea where they use the bathroom, but they can make their own assumptions. Sitting in what appears to be a homemade chair in the middle of the room is an older gray-haired man. He's snoring as they enter, and Cassidy approaches carefully. She gently shakes his shoulder to wake him up, saying, Daddy, there's some people here about the note you put up. It takes a moment for her words to register, but it becomes quite apparent when they do as he shakes his head to clear the proverbial cobwebs, then stands up and shuffles toward the group. When they get a good look at him, they realize he's missing a leg and basically has a peg leg to replace it. As they go to shake hands with him, they can see the chemical burns all up his arm. His face is disfigured, and one can only assume it's also from some sort of chemical burn. That might cause the group to reevaluate Paul's age, since the gray hair could also be a result of chemicals and or experiments. They've only got a moment to run through these thoughts, though, as Paul begins to speak. Cassidy quietly excuses herself as her father begins. He thanks them for coming to see him, and he lays out the following. It was about a week ago. Juliet and I were sitting in here having a peaceful dinner when all of a sudden some men broke in here, yelled something about caps they were owed, and took her. Said she was collateral. Yesterday I got a note saying I've got three days to get them their caps or they'll kill her. He starts to sob, but he does reach into his back pocket and produces the note. It's written in a crude scrawl, which would indicate someone without a whole lot of education. To anyone in the group whose background is Vault Dweller, it will occur to them that whoever wrote this note was not in a vault since education was, and still is, a big thing in the vaults, or at least it was in their experience. Paul continually denies owing anyone caps. He will admit that he'd managed to save a decent amount of them over the years, mostly from scavenging from wreckage and selling everything he could. Before the accident, he also managed to pull a few jobs from the board, which earned him more caps. He'll also admit he spent rather frugally hunting radroaches for meat which he'd cook up for meals frequently that way he and juliet could save their caps for an emergency what bothers him more than anything is that he rarely if ever leaves the apartment these days since he can't get around very easily he finds it difficult to do the things he used to do juliet never left the house much either because she was always worried about him Cassidy has her own apartment since she's an adult, but she handles picking up things they need around the house and bringing them to them. He doesn't want to talk about his accident and he just eventually breaks down and just keeps crying. At that point, the group's probably going to want to talk to Cassidy before they agree to take the job. If they decide to take the job first and ask her afterwards, Paul will tell them he'll give them all the caps he has if they can bring his Juliet back to him alive. For the record, that's 500 caps. And yes, I know we're putting a lot of caps out there, but there's a method to my madness. Just trust me. He will even open up the ammo box he keeps his caps in just to show that he's sincere. And no, he's not going to give him any up front. They've got to bring Juliet back alive. If by chance they find her, but she is not alive, he will pay half of what he's got. So 250. And again, this is not negotiable. When the group does speak to Cassidy, she motions for them to follow her away from her partner on guard duty to a spot where she can still see the doorway and hear him if she needs help, but far enough away that they cannot be heard in their discussion. She will confirm everything that Paul told them. She's been doing some investigation on her own, too, since there are always guards posted at the entryway, even during the night. If someone came into the apartment and took her mother, the guards would have had to see it. However, the two men on duty that night report that nobody came in or left from the start of their shift to the end, and the group after them noted that nobody left until sunup. She notes that the entryway is the only way in or out of the building, and she can confirm that since she's made it a point every single day for the past week to check for spots people could walk through to bypass the entryway, she could not find any. One thing she will say that contradicts what Paul said is that he does have enemies. See, his accident happened when he was working for Jackson Denman, who's been working for years to rebuild their section of downtown into something closer to what it was before the bombs dropped. Paul didn't work for Denman directly, rather he was working for a small team hired by Denman's assistant. They were working on a more efficient chemical they could use to dissolve cement and rebar so they could clear up the rubble faster and therefore start rebuilding quicker. Paul was one of the chief chemists on the job, as he'd been a chemical expert in the vault he grew up in back in Kansas City. She still doesn't know exactly what happened, but the results of the accident are plain as day, as the group just saw. Ever since then, she's noted the occasional visitor to her father from the small team he'd been working with. Paul would meet with them for a few minutes, but would never tell her or her mother what they discussed, as Juliet would leave the apartment for the duration of the meetings. In Cassidy's opinion, that would be where she would start if she was checking into who might have her mother. Insofar as why they were demanding caps, she's not 100% sure. She suspects it might tie into the fact that at the time of the accident, her parents had somewhere around 2,000 caps in their possession, which is a small fortune for those who don't need to buy ammo, weapons, or armor. She's wondered for years whether or not some of those caps might not have been stolen by her father, but he's never given any indication... And if he's not saying anything about it now, he's probably not ever going to. She gives the group the last address she knows the group was working at, and the group will recognize it as the address they were at yesterday. If they left when they were told to, they have no idea Amber blew it up after they left. If they were there for the explosion, then they'll probably tell Cassidy about it. Maybe not, but it's an option. If they weren't aware of the explosion, we have a way to make them aware. As they're talking to Cassidy, another man dressed and armored like her, though not wearing a helmet, comes walking up the street towards the building holding a small bag. He approaches Cassidy, reaches into the bag, and hands her a couple of iguana on a stick. He'll say something about it being payback for you getting my lunch the other day, then asks if she's heard about the explosion yesterday. He'll tell her that Garson Tactical in Dogtown was blown up late yesterday afternoon and the wreckage is still on fire. Cassidy will immediately turn pale and she'll turn to the group. She'll look at the group like she's about to get sick, but manages to regain her composure. She'll nod, thank the other man, and wait for him to walk away before she continues. This is where we pick up if the group already knew about the bombing. Cassidy will say, and it's obvious she's saying it to reassure herself, that her father didn't work out of that location all the time, and the group had another office that might be worth checking out. When it occurs to the group they might have delivered the device used to blow up the building, Uh, that means they'd be wise to not let Cassidy know that fact. She's already on the edge, and hearing that would probably set her off, though by herself she's not going to really be a challenge for the group. The address she gives them is for a building on what was the old Laclede's Landing. In our time, it's a couple of blocks of cobblestone streets and various businesses, including restaurants, bars, and a comedy club. In the game, however, what buildings still stand tend to be the types of places that reputable people stay out of. So if she's giving them that address, the group is already starting to believe that things are getting hinky. However, they have no reason to not trust her. If they want to roll what I call a shenanigans check, it's straight intelligence with a zero difficulty. So they know she's telling the truth. Now, normally crossing the highway in this part of downtown would be hazardous, as we detailed last week. However, the group knows if they head about six blocks north, things will flatten out and all they'll have to do is climb over the rubble of the Interstate 55 overpass in order to head to the landing. With the time spent dealing with the rubble, they can be on the landing inside of eh, 25 minutes. The building they're looking for is on the first street they hit once they hit the landing, but it's all the way down at the end, which gives it an excellent view of the arch. What the group really finds odd is that this building doesn't appear to have taken any damage from the bombing, which is extra weird because every other building on the block was either almost completely or completely destroyed. That should get their attention and should put them on edge as they approach. When they get about 100 yards from the building, they notice a four-man detail on the front of the building, one facing north, which is the direction they're coming from, two facing west, which means they're in front of the doors, and another that appears to be facing south, which would notice somebody coming from the direction of the arch. For our records, these are Raiders, and their stats are on page 386. However, they're a level behind the group in the book, so I want to beef them up a bit to make them equal, and here's how we do that. Add a point each to agility and small guns, give each another health point, and give them the Gunslinger perk. Also, each man has a Molotov cocktail, and they'll toss it at the group during their action in round one. Now, the group can try to talk their way in. It's a charisma plus speech check with a difficulty of four, And we're putting the difficulty that high because these guys are under orders to not let anyone in unless they're wearing the proper uniform, and we'll get to that in a minute. This is probably going to turn into a combat situation, so run it like you would any other combat. When it's done, they can once again scavenge for gear, then enter the building. If the combat took place, there will be alarms going off in the building and they'll notice a large metal door that has been slammed shut. In fact the locks on that door are so loud they'll be able to hear them click into place as they enter. They'll also notice the second line of security, two Protrektron robots standing in front of the doors. This will be a different style of combat for the group, so check over the stats for these guys on page 363. The one plus for the group is that they only have eight health points each, so if they can get some good shots in early, they have the chance to even the playing field pretty quickly. Oh, and if they manage to talk their way past the front line, there won't be alarms blaring, but the robots will not let them pass, so they'll still be looking at a fight. At that point, the four guys out front will join in, and they'll be in a much more difficult fight than they would have been otherwise. Now, that being said, there are some cover spots they can use, the primary one being the curved desk about 10 feet from the door and slightly to the right. At a glance, there seems to be a bank of security monitors built into it, along with a number of buttons. Those come into play after the fight. Use the rules for cover should someone think to use it, and those rules are on page 83. Once the fights are all over, the options they have are to try to pick the lock, which is a nearly impossible task, luck plus lock pick, difficult 5, they could try to use lasers to burn through the door, or they can check out the handy dandy security panel. The problem is that none of the buttons give any obvious indication of what they're used for, they have roman numerals on them ranging from 1 to 6. This will be a luck plus science check, but we'll only make the difficulty a 3. If they make it, they hit the correct button and we'll hear the locks throw open. Regardless of how they gain entry, the results are the same. They enter a large laboratory with multiple rows of equipment throughout. The aisles seem to go forever, but after 50 feet, the aisles end and they notice a table surrounded by four individuals in what we'd know in the real world as clean room garb. They seem to be oblivious to what's going on around them, but they also seem to be performing some sort of an operation, as the group can hear the beeping of monitors that would be typically used in a surgical situation. These four guys are just regular guys. The group can easily intimidate them into stopping what they're doing, and the group can see a woman matching Juliet's description laid out on the table. It doesn't look like they've cut her open, but there are a variety of needles sticking out of her skin, and a sickly-looking green liquid is flowing through them. She appears to still be alive, but since they've got her on oxygen, they can't be certain. That being said, an intelligence plus medicine check with a difficulty of 3 will allow a character to check the various monitors and confirm, yeah, she's, she's alive. A second check with the same difficulty allows the character to determine that the liquids being pumped into her are very similar to those that have been known to cause mutations that could result in the formation of a super mutant. They could also cause death, but that's a crapshoot. Obviously, the first priority is to disconnect her from the machines and get the needles out of her. She's alive, but unconscious. To be expected, for sure, but that will make getting her out a bit more difficult. Next, the group may decide they want to see if there's any sort of antidote or system cleansing thing in here, which one could argue might be on hand in case of an accidental injection. That requires two separate roles. Both are intelligence plus medicine, and both are difficulty two. The first role is to work through the racks to figure out which beds are what would be considered bad and which would be considered antidotes and good, while the other is to determine which one works for what they've got. Successes on both rolls produce one vial of a purplish med that they believe, based on their knowledge, will work to counteract the serum, provided they're not too late. Oh, and about this point, they realize they're hearing movement from the floor above them, and it should occur to them that they need to get the heck out of Dodge will allow for the person who has the best medicine score to load up a needle and inject Juliet, so no role needed. However, to get her out of there, they're going to need to carry her since at this point she needs the time to wake up. When they get back to the lobby, they can hear the loud thumping of boots through the walls on each side, so they really need to hustle. Making it to the street, the obvious choice would be to turn left, head south, then cut back west to head back towards the destination. Should they do that, they can get away before the reinforcements get to them. If they go north, five more raiders will come out from the two doors and immediately open fire. No adjustments on these guys. Run them the way they are in the book. Now, this is where the uniform thing comes in. I say they're raiders because we're using the stats. However, they all seem to look... It's a black and grayish theme uniform, the armor seems to match, black jack boots. These are not good guys. Okay. We'll get more into it later. I just wanted to give you, that's the kind of uniform that the guards were looking for the first go around. All right. So at this point, the group can either keep moving and hope the shots miss and the Raiders don't follow, or they can lay Juliet down, fight and hope that she doesn't get targeted. For the record, she won't be. These guys want her alive just as much. So they're just aiming at the group run it and the group can successfully get away once the last raider is taken care of. By the way, if it gets down to one raider, that one will attempt to run back through the open door on his turn and slam it shut behind him. With that, the group will have made a clean getaway, though they'll probably have way more questions than answers. And in case it comes up during their time at the security desk, they wouldn't have had time to search for information, since they were busy trying to get the door open and they wouldn't have had time while searching for an antidote since they'd have been sure more men would be on the way anyway, at least if they were smart. They are going to have to get information another way. Once they get back to the old office building, they're met by the guards on duty, but when they see the group has Juliet, they make sure they've got a clear path back to the apartment. Cassidy is waiting in the common area when they come through, and the look of sheer joy on her face is tempered by the look of concern she has when she realizes her mother is unconscious. She opens the door to her parents' apartment, and the group can take her in and lay her on a mattress. Paul is very excited to see her, and questions the group about where she was found. He quizzes the group about her condition, takes a minute to do some mental math, and tells the group that based on what they've told him about the various concoctions... He agrees Juliet will be fine, though she'll probably need a couple of hours to wake up. Cassidy will breathe a sigh of relief, then Paul gets down to asking for details about everything. As the group lays out what they choose to lay out, he gets an angry look in his eyes. At that point, he starts talking about things the group will be very surprised to hear. He admits he'd been working on a project, but not the one he told his family about. He doesn't know who Jackson Denman works for, but he's certain it's not Garson Tactical. When they used their basement space, it was after hours and there were no Garson personnel on site. The project they were working on was a formula to create a new brand of Super Mutant. The idea was to create one that would be totally subservient to its creator and would follow commands without question. Paul has no idea who these new mutants would be for, but with the amount of caps he was being paid, he also didn't ask a lot of questions. He also admits that his injuries came when his conscience filing caught up with him and he refused to work any further on the project. Denman had a couple of his personal security strap him to a table and drip acid over parts of his body. When they were done, he was dumped at the old Barnes Jewish Hospital and the crew there did their best to save him. He chose to lie to Juliet and Cassidy because he was embarrassed about what he'd done. Insofar as the visitors, they were coming from Denman, as he wanted Paul to sign papers absolving Denman from any responsibility for his injuries. Paul refused to sign, though he assured the men that he wasn't going to tell the truth about the incident. Cassidy finally asks for the truth about the caps, and Paul does admit he stole them from Garson Tactical. But since nobody from there has ever come after him, he figures they probably blamed somebody else for it. Paul thanks the group for bringing his beloved wife back to him and hands them the case with the caps in it. The group can choose to not take all of them if they want, and Paul is not going to argue with them. After they're done talking, Cassidy walks them to the building entrance, hugs each one of them, and thanks them for saving her mother and for getting the truth out of her father. Now we're going to end the build with the group having a decent amount of time on their hands and plotting their next move, but we have a couple of points we need to hit on before we finish. You might have some group members who want to take it upon themselves to take vials from the lab while they're in there. They can do that, but at some point it should occur to them that the vials have an unusual marking on them. You can decide what that looks like. That would name where they come from, which might make it difficult to sell. Plus, even if they did sell them, there's a pretty good chance whomever would buy them might sell them out to the people they took them from. Lay that out to your group when they go to make those choices and then let the chips fall where they may. The group can also decide they want to investigate the whole Jackson Denman thing and try to get some justice for Paul. We are going to build that one out, but we're not going to do it for two weeks since next week we're hitting the last job on the list. Just have them be patient on that and say something along the lines of, you're working on digging up information and I'll let you know when you've got enough to act on. That should answer the majority of the questions you or your group should have, but if you've got one that I missed, hit me up and I'll try to provide a good one for you. And that brings our build to a close for this week. As I said a moment ago, next week we build out the third job on our list, and if time permits, we'll get into that information gathering expedition for the group. In the meanwhile, we're deep diving the Fallout role-playing game on our other show, Role-Playing History. We're covering a bit of the history of the video game series it's based on, then breaking down the rules and system for our listeners. So if you're looking for more Fallout content this week, check it out. Role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgiaproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted property of Modiphius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games, and they're used on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out more on this or any of the other fine game products Modiphius produces, Check out their website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot the music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's campaign build along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com/forward/slash/gaming/forward/slash/badgmprod on Twitter at badgmp, YouTube and Tumblr. It's Bad GM Productions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com and online it's badgmproductions.net. Next week, we build out the final job on the group's job list, and hopefully it won't be quite as hectic as this one was, though I promise nothing. That's next week though, friends. Until then, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.